another uh, episode of This Week with Sabir. Uh, it, this week in the hot seat is Dave Moran. And uh, he's the founding uh, partner at Deep uh, Relevance Partners. And um, uh, he's a strategic um, problem solver and innovation architect with a 35 years of marketing consulting track record of driving profitable growth for large uh, corporations and startups. And um, so his claim to fame from 1993 IPO to 2016 sale of Kerrig Green Mountain. Uh, we will definitely dive into the insider story behind it. We, we will learn uh, from this incredible, I'm actually honored to have Dave on, on, on this uh, uh, show uh, to kind of share with us uh, and show us his scars and learnings and everything so that every entrepreneur that's uh, uh, that's been following this week with Sabir gets to learn, um, you know, from Dave's experience. So, Dave, thank you for being part of the show. Thank you. It's fun to be here. <laughs> uh, but before we get started, I, I do want to say something to the audience. We debated, debated, <laughs> Dave and I, if we should uh, take a cue from a national occurrence of certain that certain thing that happened this week. And we decided against it. So you're not going to see any of that stuff here, you know. So if you're tuning in to see a debate here, we're not we're not giving you debate. We're giving you education and information. So so that's that's what we promised. That's how we're going to behave. Uh, <laughs> uh, and um, more importantly, uh, I do want to say thank you to Peter Klein, uh, who's a mutual friend of ours, who put us together uh, to. Uh, you know, so that we can, you, you know, so you can, Dave, you can share your story about Carrot Green Mountain. Thanks. Yeah. So uh, he's an incredible guy. Um, uh, so let's, uh, before before we get started, I always talk about uh, an entrepreneur's DNA playing a huge role. When I say DNA, I don't mean what school you went to and stuff like that. That's, you know, we have people who are very smart that come out of Harvard, and but we have also had people that are very smart, they just have street smarts, you know, and they all they did was go to high school and not even go to college. So it's it's not that part of it. It's more of if I take Dave, before we get jump into the Carrick story, if we if we talk about Dave when he was 22 and he just came out of school, um, tell me tell me something about that, Dave. Let me tell you a story about my senior year in college and MBA that kind of gives you a a uh, view into my DNA. I'm a Connecticut kid raised in the metropolitan New York area. I went to uh, TCU, Texas Christian University in Fort Worth, Texas. So I'm a horned frog. Uh, played tennis there for two years. Uh, was not doing particularly well in tennis or academically. So I quit playing tennis, focused on academics, did well my last two years and uh, received a fellowship to business school there was doing well in my business school. I was halfway through my MBA and I'm an only child, so I get a lot of adult attention. So I was home from business school halfway through my MBA and my dad says to me, hey Dave, where are you planning to work when you, when you finish your MBA? Do uh, the top marketing firms you know, hire TCU MBAs? And I'm like, geez, that's a good question. I've never, I frankly had not thought about that. So of course I go and research and this is, you know, pre-internet, so I'm back in the library and all this. And of course, the top marketing companies like Procter & Gamble, General Foods, those types of companies do not hire TCU MBAs. They're hiring Harvard, Wharton, Kellogg, et cetera. So 
that my dream was to go get recruited by one of those uh, top firms. So what I did is I, I my father said, well, why don't you transfer to one of those fancy schools? So I went to the dean at TCU and I said, I'd like to transfer. And he said, well, you can't transfer. You're the first person that's ever won the Charles Tandy Marketing Fellowship. He was the founder of Radio Shack in Fort Worth. So oh. I was on a free fellowship. He said, I'm not going to go to Charles and tell him that the guy that won his first fellowship turned it in. So uh, he said, if you want to go to NYU or one of these places, you can go there, but you have to transfer your credits back. So what I did is I went to NYU for my second year, which allowed me to get recruited on campus by all the top marketing companies, Procter & Gamble, General Foods, et cetera. Because back in those days, all you did is you wrote your name on the list when Procter & Gamble was coming to campus. Um, every company asked me one question. I'm sitting there at NYU and my resume says, Texas Christian University MBA. And everybody would ask me one question, which is, how are you here? And I would say, and I would tell them the whole story. And I got the most job offers at NYU that year coming out because I was really differentiated versus all the other students. So that plan allowed me to go from TCU to General Foods, who recruited only the top MBA students in the country. So that's kind of a window into my soul. I think it was a pretty clever way of beating the system. It worked out great. I ended up at General Foods, which I never would have done if I had not transferred from Texas Christian to, to NYU. And uh, so I think a lot of marketing is understanding consumers, how people think, how systems work. And uh, so the guy at General Foods interviewed me. He said, you know, you're just the kind of conniving bastard we want in marketing, <laughs> which I took as a compliment. So. That's my personal story, how I launched my career into marketing at General Foods uh, several years ago. So now when you look at, um, you know, at that time versus 2020 today, right? Uh, marketing and how you communicate, like consumer communication and consumer communication preference has changed over time too, right? Yes. Um, from your view, what, what does that look like, you know? Having started with, you said that there was no internet at that time, right? You had to go to the library, right? Um, you used to mail letters to people. My kids still don't believe that. But, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think, uh, Sabir, the fundamentals of marketing have not changed. Mm -hmm. how, how you connect with people emotionally from a messaging standpoint, all that types of stuff. What's really changed dramatically is the media delivery of all that, where it's instantaneous, you know, it's 360, it's connecting to their passion points, being able to connect with them anyway. They're not sitting down watching I Love Lucy and watching 30 second commercials. So the the medium has changed. But as far as the principles, uh, the fundamentals of how to connect with consumers, how to motivate consumers, how to understand their needs, how to deliver on their needs, I don't think have changed very much at all, frankly. No, I, I I completely agree with you on that. You know, it's funny that my my background, if you look at Sabir at 22, he was a computer scientist uh, coding and hacking code, you know, very <laughs> technical person at that time. And over time, I became this kind of an Uber e-commerce marketer that grows and grows businesses tremendously like this, you know. Um, 
my in my initial phase, I I didn't go to college. I didn't take a single course in marketing. You know, my the remote the only business course I can remotely can point to, one was economics 101, and the other one was accounting 101, because those were core requirements for for getting my degree. Right. Other than that, I didn't take any marketing. I didn't take any other courses like that when I went to college. You know, if you think about like form, former formal co course study. But when e-commerce was coming about and I was kind of forced into, which was a great, I mean, it, it was a blessing, uh, forced into like taking over marketing of this e-commerce business. Uh, it was actually at the, the vitamin shop. On the weekends, I would go to Barnes & Noble, to your point. There were no e-commerce marketing books at that time. Nobody had written it. You know, it was being written, you know. It's like, you know... Right. Uh, you know, th there is history, but there's history being written right now, right? So I needed to write history, you know, not just be part of history. So I, I would go in and I would pick up books and I would under try to understand everything from branding all the way to like the mathematics of marketing, right? You know, recency, frequency, marketing, and, uh, you know, monetary value, uh, LTV marketing, life cycle, stuff like that. I learned it at Barnes & Noble by picking out a book and sitting down with a cup of coffee and making notes and trying to understand it. And during the week when I went back to vitamin shop, I would actually apply those principles and go like, okay, I, I, at least the book was, I don't know, from 1970, whatever, you know, uh, but at least the principles are uh, the same. I'm going to apply that and see how it applies to e-commerce. And, and th those fundamentals don't change. Just the medium had changed, you know, the, how, the veracity of how you execute also changed to your point. Like the frequency changed. It doesn't matter. I mean, in the beginning, you would play. Yeah, uh, in the data we sorry. Yeah, go ahead. I know. I think um, the data that we have available at our fingertips has obviously changed dramatically. The things we can do online with, with targeting people, you know, in any particular location at any point in time by the second. And also the tools that we have as marketers to understand consumers, not only consciously, but subconsciously, which is a big advantage um, and development in, in marketing science in the last 10 years that have allowed us to understand consumers much better. That's been a big advancement. Yeah, exactly. So now, now kind of jumping into, before we talk about Green Mountain, right? Green Carrot Green Mountain, how, how did you get involved with them? Like, what led you to who connected you? How did you end up there yeah. from where you were at General Foods? Um, the story goes back to 1980. I was living in the suburbs of uh, New York City out in Westchester County. Uh, I was a competitive uh, tennis and platform tennis player. And a, uh, uh, an associate of mine was a guy named Bob Stiller, who was 10 years older than me. Um, Bob had... Gone, I graduated from college and started a business, Easy Wider Rolling Papers, which some people listening in may know what that product is. But uh, I think Bob was the first uh, cannabis uh, entrepreneur in the United States. So he invented Easy Wider Rolling Papers and um, sold it for a few million dollar profit when he was in his 20s. Then he moved to Vermont. Uh, he was an avid skier. He was living in Vermont. had an incredible cup of coffee. It was a green coffee shop. And he didn't view himself as a connoisseur of coffee, but he, he thought this was damn good coffee and significantly better than 
what was out there in the mainstream market. Um, week later, when he was back down here, he gave me a call and he said, uh, hey, let's go play some platform. I want to buy you a beer afterwards, which was an offer I couldn't refuse. So he said, I want to talk to you about something. So he sat down and he said, uh, you know, he told me the story about having this great cup of coffee. And he said, um, you know, I really I think I'm going to buy the company. And, and I said, Bob, that's the dumbest blank idea I've ever heard. So yeah. that and, uh, and I gave him four reasons why it was such a stupid idea. One is the coffee markets decline every year since uh, World War Two. Coffee market in the United States peaked when the GIs came back and were drinking a lot of coffee. Uh, and it's declined basically every year since then, especially back in from, you know, the 40s to 1980. When we were having this conversation. So I said, it's a declining market. Number two, it's dominated by the best marketers in the United States. General Foods owned Maxwell House, Procter & Gamble owned Folgers and Nestle. They had Nestle. I said, they're the three most sophisticated marketers. You don't want to compete with those guys. Now, by the way, I have Starbucks, which is now a Dunkin' Donuts. So those are my four reasons why I think you're a moron. Mm -hmm. Put the money back, you know, pocket and get in the next lift line. Um, later, you know, he, th he thanked me for the advice. He was, he's a very thoughtful, quiet guy. He called me back a week later, said I bought the company. I said, well, thanks for listening. Um, so he, <laughs> he, ignored, he ignored my advice. Um, he bought the company. Uh, which then was just a couple of coffee shops. I think it was two coffee shops in Wakefield and uh, um, Burlington, Vermont. And then uh, several years later, invited me to be on the board. And uh, today, Bob's a billionaire. So uh, that's how I got uh, introduced to uh, Kerry Green Mountain, by recommending to him that he not purchase the company. And, and then, I mean... First of all, he doesn't listen to you, right? <laughs> he does exactly the opposite. I have a cousin like that, by the way. He always asks for my advice, and he ends up doing exactly the opposite of what I tell him yeah, to do. Yeah. I love him to death, but that's uh, that's who he is. Um, but then, but then he comes back and says, "I want you to be part of my board." Like, how was that conversation? <laughs> um. <laughs> The, the reason he, he did that, because he came back and because I asked him that, I said, you know, I, I recommended you not do this. Um, and he said, well, I really respect people that that are willing to tell me what they believe. He said, you know, I had worked in the Maxwell House division of, uh, of uh, General Foods for four years. So I had experience in the coffee business. I had just recently left General Foods. So he valued that. Um, and Bob wanted people involved in with the company that a he trusted, number two that had some specific functional expertise, whether it's marketing, sales, legal, financial operations, whatever. Um, and that's the way he put together his first group of advisors, which were really advisors before any formalized board. But he uh, respected my understanding of the coffee business and my willingness to kind of shoot straight with him and tell him, you know, with some good rationale and why it was a bad idea. But typical Bob and a typical, you know, I'm happy to tell you a lot more about him. He's a fascinating guy. He's probably um, worth a minute or two relative to a successful entrepreneur. But um, so that's why I was invited to, to be on the board and ended up being there for 23 years. So, I mean, that, that's a 
that's a very good lesson, I think, because we have a lot of founders and entrepreneurs that tune into this show. That's a great advice because knowing your inner circle and knowing that who is in that inner circle or of advisors or they don't have to be full-time people. They might, they might be board of directors. They might be your friends, but people that you can trust that would set you straight, you know, if you're on the wrong path or, or give you a, like a very honest opinion because when you are sitting at the top, whether you're the CEO or president of the company or the owner, you don't know who's being truthful to you, right? You don't know who's telling you the truth because uh, that's the right thing to do, or are right. they, or are they telling you that because you, they want to be on your good side, and they're just more like a yes man kind of a kind of characters around you? Yeah, or they or they work for you. You know, advisors have frankly less skin in the game, willing to shoot straight. I mean, I've been a consultant now for thirty five years, and I tell clients up front. I mean, one of the things I promise you will be intellectual uh, integrity and honesty. We'll always tell you what we strongly believe you may not want to hear it but it's what we're paid to do so uh and i've always uh, believed that and it's it's done me well so uh but that's you know how how i got involved in uh curie green mountain coffee at the at the very beginning so uh now bob stiller very interesting character Right. You just said that, you know, we should spend a couple of minutes on it. Definitely we should. Yeah. Uh, because, I mean, that's it's a very historical company. Uh, so tell me more about Bob working with him. Uh, you know, I mean, one, you were friends, but then you were working with him on the. Uh, at the yeah, company. we were friendly. Um, Bob's not classically trained. He uh, grew up here in the suburbs of. Um, New York. He went to Parsons College in Iowa. I think he was a liberal arts major. Uh, he, he came from an entrepreneurial family. His father had a family business. Bob is an entrepreneur. He is a visionary. So that's a key characteristic. I don't think he ever wanted to work for anybody else in his life. He got out of college. He started Easy Wider and sold it before he was um, 30. Um, he strongly believes that um, Business should have social purpose and should mm -hmm. do social good. Now, you, you know, right now, that's a very contemporary idea in 2020. Every firm has social responsibilities as part of their mission. It's very in vogue, right? Well, but this was 40 years ago. Bob was always a visionary and he was very involved. And, and that was one of the, and I'll get into that more later, but one of the founding principles of of Curie Green Mountain Coffee. So commitment to social causes, um, a caring guy, really cared about his employees and cared about the, the uh, business chain, the coffee growing people in South America, Costa Rica, Africa, whatever. Uh, he contributed into the business chain. So the people involved were always benefiting. Um, his approach to management, he studied something called appreciative inquiry which I had never heard of, okay? Mm -hmm. And I think it was just being founded then by a guy named David Cooper Ryder out at Case Western University, still teaches it today. Bob went out there and got trained. And it's a whole approach on focused on positivity, a positive approach to management rather than uh, maybe the debates last night would be a good example of the other, other approach to, I guess that wasn't management, but whatever it was, it wasn't very uh, positive. Um, a good example of, of Bobby, you'd ask him how he was, you know, when you just saw him routine, how you doing? His answer always was better and better. 
<laughs> better and better. That was always his uh, answer. So he always uh, focused on on the positive. Um, another characteristic, which is very uh, prevalent within successful entrepreneurs, is persistence. You know, a lot of people who work for major corporations, they try, they test market something and it doesn't work, they close it down. They move on to the next project, right? Not, no, no skin in the game. It's, but pers most successful entrepreneurs, their persistence is at a different level. They'll keep experimenting. And so bringing through the Curry Mountain story, you'll see how where we ended up is very different than where we started. Um, so, uh, you know, Green Mountain Coffee was founded in 1981. The real tipping point was in 2005. Wow. 25 years late. 25 years later, after 25 years, the company was only 200 million dollars in sales, which is a small company. But it was his persistence and his ability to change that allowed um, ultimately an incredible success story. But most people, I would venture to say, would quit before the tipping point at 20, 25 years out. So um, I think that's uh, that's it. Probably, I guess one more one more trait is Bob is very confident. He, and I don't mean cocky. He is not cocky. He has uh, he's kind of a low profile guy. He's not you know chest beating kind of guy. But he was not intimidated by the big companies that I mentioned in the coffee business. He saw, thought they were slow moving. They weren't innovative. They were prisoners to Wall Street. They were focused on today, not tomorrow and we're not nimble. And he really thought that if you were smart, you had a good idea, you had passion, you could outmaneuver those folks. And he was right. And a lot of people, um, you know, would not take those big guys on. And if you do, you obviously have to be smarter and more nimble because you don't have the resources and you don't have the experience. But, uh, you know, so I think confidence is the other key, uh, characteristic, you know, a good example is I gave him my, you know, incredibly articulate reasons why he should not buy Green Mountain Coffee. He said, thank you very much and went and did it anyway. So, <laughs> um, but so, you know, that that's kind of Bob in a nutshell, but he built a hell of a company that, uh, you know, was a big win for, frankly, everybody involved in it, including the employees, including the state of Vermont, coffee drinkers, shareholders, et cetera. So it was a, it was a real win. Fascinating, fascinating guy. Uh, just to kind of stay on that for a little bit more. Um, sure. So you know, he says, thank you for the advice. He goes and acquires it. Any idea what the what the state of the company was at acquisition? Um, the state of Green Mountain or the state of Keurig? So, uh, of of Keurig, Green Mountain. That was his first oh, acquisition, Green right? Yeah, Green Mountain. Um, this, you know, let's turn to like, the early nineties. So, you know, he's, he's owned the company for 10 years. It was a small, uh, regional coffee company. That was a well-kept secret that, you know, everybody knew it, that were skiers in Vermont. If you went to sugar Bush or Stratton or all these places, you knew green mountain coffee. If you lived in Boston or Massachusetts, Maine or Massachusetts, you probably knew it, but it was regional and it was being slowly expanded. But, you know, 12 or 13 years later, it only kind of moved down to the New York area. So it was uh, not going very far. It was making money, but um, frankly, was in search of a growth strategy because 
you had the three well-entrenched players in the supermarket coffee business, General Foods, um, Proctor, and Nestle, and they own the supermarket coffee business. And you had Dunkin' and Starbucks, and they own the coffee shop business. So you had at home and away from home. And those are all dominant. So you're like, how can we compete and expand? We need to find a niche. Mm-hmm. And that was, A, the problem, but it also became the strategy. Um, so that was Green Mountain pre-introduction pre, uh, to, to Keurig. Um, so, so how does a company like Green Mountain with its own because it, it like its own level of maturity, right? It's coming, coming and coming up and up and coming, right? And in, in a gigantic uh, industry, how does it discover Keurig, and and why does it think it's it's the right idea at that time to to go and acquire it? A guy named Steve Sable, who was our head of sales at um, Green Mountain at the time, went to a regional coffee meeting. Uh, for the New England, everybody in the coffee business in the New England area, met a guy from Keurig at the meeting. They started a conversation. The guy from Keurig explained to him they did not have an operating machine at the time. They had a prototype, Keurig. They were a startup, and they they had a, a basic prototype, and but they had an idea. And those two guys connected, and Steve uh, Sable from Green Mountain was very intrigued by the idea. And he was intrigued by the idea because the coffee business at the time uh, was what they called automatic drip coffee. You made 10 cups in a pot. They still yeah, exist. Yeah. Um, and Every that, hotel room has it now. You know, it, it has been changing out now. Yeah. And, and those um, are fraught with, with problems. They're, they're really what I call consumer pain points. If you think about those 10 cup brewers, um, they're very inconvenient. You know, you... Uh, a lot of coffee is wasted. About 35% of all the brewed coffee in the United States is thrown out of those wow. containers because it's not drank. Number three, it sits in the pot on the heated uh, plate and gets stale and uh, burnt tasting, kind of like Starbucks. Um, also, if you have 10 cups, you know, you and your wife or whoever cannot drink two different things. Everybody has to drink the same thing. So mm-hmm. if you think about it, uh, and the other thing is that the quality of coffee at that point in time really was dependent on how much water you put in. If you put too much water in, the coffee was too watery. If you didn't put enough water in, the coffee was too bitter and strong. So you had very, you had quality issues, a lot of inconsistency. So you had lack of convenience, you had lack of variety, you had lack of quality, you had waste, you had bad value. So there's like five pain points in the coffee business and Steve and the guy from Keurig started a brainstorm and they said, boy, if we could create a brewer that would make one cup at a time and every cup is fresh and you and your wife or your son can each drink a different cup and you can have one cup now and a different tasting one, two hours from now, it literally addressed all of those pain points of the existing coffee market. And that was the aha moment. And what happened then is um, Steve brought the idea back to Bob uh, Stiller, explained it to him. Bob got excited, uh, actually gave me a call, and we decided, and he said, you know, how, how should we explore this idea? 
with with consumers to make sure that we're not you know breathing our own exhaust here let's make sure this is a real consumer idea so <clears throat> i uh I said, you know, we ought to field a little tiny consumer test. I actually wrote a, a, um, a concept, just a paragraph or two that kind of articulated what I just said to you, that how it addressed all those issues. And you just make one cup at a time and they're all fresh. We did that and uh, we sent it to a bunch of consumers, got their reaction to it. And it, it was a big idea from a consumer standpoint. Um, then what we did was... Uh, we uh, hired a consulting firm because we wanted an objective look at the entire coffee market and an objective opinion on whether they thought it could be a big category, given those other big guys that are out there. Could this be a, a big market, a good business idea besides just a consumer idea? So we hired one of the white shoe consulting uh, companies um, and they did a very thorough assessment and they came back and I still have to actually have the chart right in front of me uh, right here that they had a great presentation and, and, and it was basically, it was a three dimensional, but it had an X and a Y axis. <clears throat> and on one axis was their projected share of the total coffee market that single, this is called single cup brewing of single cup brewing could become. So that was one access. And so it was like 10, 20, 30% share of the coffee market. On the other access was how many cups per day in one of these machines would a consumer use? So you, you, could, you had that. And then the third access was what share of that market could Keurig Green Mountain get, if, especially if we were the leader and the innovator. And that chart, they brought it in by now that board had formed and they showed it to us. And inside this grid with all these boxes was the estimated value of Curie Green Mountain as a company. If the market developed to this level and they drank one and a half cups a day of these little pods and we got a 30, 40 or 50% share, that was the, the market cap value of the company 10 years out. And they were amazingly accurate in hindsight that, you know, I could say this now, but at that point in time, so we, Bob said, what do you think? And he and uh, everybody nodded their heads and he says, we're pushing all our chips to the middle of the table. He said, we're going to hit a home run or we're going out of business, but we're betting the ranch on single cup brewing. And uh, we made an investment in uh, Keurig at that point in time. Uh, we bought 35% of the company and we became official partners. And what was uh, important about that, Sabir, is early in the process, we got to, uh, we worked on the development of both the brewer because it's a two-part system. You have the brewer, right? And then you have the pods that go in the brewer. Green Mountain was really bring. Do, do you see that? Uh you see that in the kitchen back there, the small device you see black, that's that's a Keurig machine. It's sitting. It's I knew I always liked you. Yes. <laughs> um, but uh, so we what was important is we partnered on the development of the machine using our our uh, coffee expertise and their um, engineering expertise. Mm -hmm. And by doing it together uh, and one of the things that that was interesting is, is Keurig did not want to deal with one of the big 
brewery, one of the big companies. They didn't want to deal with General Foods or Maxwell House or Proctor or whatever, because they just thought they would be just swallowed up. They wanted a partner. And frankly, we were a little tiny company, basically the same size as them. And uh, so we were literally on equal footing and we developed it um, together, the whole system. And because we did that, I think we were able to get to market much faster than if we had uh, done it uh, independently. So now this is at the age, uh, internet is a baby, right? It does not exist from a conference no. standpoint, doesn't exist. No. So you cannot really talk about internet distribution or, or Amazon or anything like that. Um, what what was the distribution strategy after after the the product uh, was made? Um, the I get the consumer proposition now. How do you bring it to the masses so that consumers are buying the product now? Yeah, the um, the distribution strategy. I mean, one one of the things I should say before this is one one of the strategies of the new company was uh, what we call total innovation, and that means. You know, most people, when you think about innovation, they go right to innovative product or innovative packaging. That's mostly where it's pigeonholed. The concept of total innovation is fostering innovation throughout the entire company mm-hmm. in every function, even legal within the boundaries of the law accounting. But the, the whole thing is new and better ways of doing things. And so we applied that and we applied that concept to, to uh, distribution also. So we had several, what we believe were innovative distribution strategies. We started first in offices, A, because a hell of a lot of coffee is drank in offices. And we felt that the convenience benefits of these single cup brewers were, were greatest in offices because you don't have people to clean the machines and all that kind of stuff. Office coffee is a pain in the neck if you own the office. So we first penetrated the office coffee channel. The other reason, because there was a huge need, but number two is that's where most coffee is drank in offices and in doctors waiting rooms and all that, but out of the home. And the other benefit was they could try the Keurig machine in the office for free. Mm-hmm. And you start using the system. And then what happens is they're, they're like, wow, I'd really love to have one of these in my home. So the strategy was, if you can get free trial in marketing, there's nothing better, right? Mm-hmm. So we really focused on the office coffee channel first before the consumer channel uh, and focused it and got broad scale distribution, literally, quote unquote, national, because we had got involved with office coffee distributors and many large corporations. And frankly, it was a pretty easy sale because we provided so many benefits. We were we were basically parity cough, uh, costs to existing coffee systems, but we were a, a hell of a lot more convenient. And we provided much more variety to the employees as far as what they could drink. So it, it upgraded the program from their employee standpoint, and it made it much easier for them from the uh, standpoint of operating the, the, the offices. It almost became like a benefit. Um, so that was the first thing. Then the next thing is when we, we started to move into the consumer market, we targeted some key retailers to be our partners. Uh, and the first one we targeted was Bed Bath & Beyond. Mm-hmm. And because it was a targeted store where people buy a lot of appliances, it's a home store. 
they embrace the uh, system. They're still our leading retailer today, uh, you know, 35 years later or whatever that number is. Uh, it's at the, you know, probably a lot of these people go into Bed Bath & Beyond. It's usually right in the front. They, they have a thing that's like a mountain of K-Cups. They have 15 different types of brewers. They were real partners and they made a real strategic commitment. They loved it because the person that buys K-Cups goes into a Bed Bath & Beyond store a lot more frequently than the person that their normal shopper. Wow. And it's much higher margin than their more normal product. So they loved it because, you know, they don't really sell in Bed Bath & Beyond what you'd call high turn consumer goods. You know, you're in there buying stuff for your your bathroom and, and you know, other stuff for your home, but it's not a frequent consumer purchase. K-Cups are like every two weeks uh, and it's high margin. So they loved it. So they, they built huge end caps right in the beginning of the store. You walk in the door, you see it and you still see it today. Um, we made, and this is heresy, and this took a lot of uh, some board meetings, but the next strategy was make Walmart wait. Once we became the darling of the industry, and we were pretty hot back then in the beginning, growing very rapidly because there was a demand for this machine, um, you know, all of a sudden then, wall, the wall, you know, you start getting the inbound phone calls from Bentonville saying, hey, come on down for a, a meeting so we can beat you up. And uh, we said, uh, we kept saying, no thanks, because we knew they would crush Bed Bath & Beyond they would crush the, the pricing model as they do in every single category. Um, and we did not want to allow them to do that. So we held them off for five years. Wow. Um, and by then, um, the balance of power had shifted because uh, by then we were a real power in the coffee industry. And we could um, negotiate much better with Walmart and have a much more of an equal footing um, with them. The the um, other two things that we did that were um, innovative from a distribution standpoint, and we'll talk about brands in a minute, but um, Starbucks and Dunkin' Donuts are, were in our system, and they were two of the leading brands in the system. As part of the licensing agreement, we, we said you need to sell boxes of K-Cups in your stores. So still can buy them today. If you go into Starbucks, you go to Dunkin' Donuts, they sell the cardboard boxes with K-Cups in there of just their products. So in Starbucks, you get just Starbucks, Dunkin', just Dunkin'. But they realized that a lot, you know, they want people dry, drinking their coffee at home too. But we negotiated that into our licensing agreement with those companies. So we've had distribution in, in 15,000 Starbucks stores since the beginning and about 9,000 Dunkin' Donuts stores since the beginning. The other thing we did was we said, okay, who else drinks a lot of coffee? Well, about 80% people um, start drinking coffee in the United States when you either join the military or, or when you go to college. So we, we created a, a program around college uh, campuses and I actually test marketed at TCU where I went to school, <clears throat> excuse me. And we created a marketing plan competition and they developed marketing plans on how to penetrate the college channel. So the college kids gave us a lot of really good ideas. And we took that, which is really another lesson learned, right? Have your target consumer build marketing plans to reach their own target market. 
those kids came up with great ideas. <laughs> and we took those ideas, we turned it into a program, we evaluated it, and then we rolled it out. So we had college and distribution virtually in every college campus in the United States. We, we could customize brewers. So if you went to TCU and you thought purple was great because that's the color, you could get a purple brewer, you could get a decal of a horn frog, that's the mascot, and you could put it right on your brewer. And you could get one for Northwestern and Yale and Harvard and whatever. So you could customize your brewer for your school and you started drinking coffee and your first coffee was cured and your first machine was cured. The other brilliant part of that is if there's three or four kids sharing a uh, off-campus apartment, when they graduate, one kid gets the brewer, they leave, the other two have to buy one. So it's a great program on how to get young people into your category uh, really early. Um, the last part of the distribution strategy that worked was we had um, the Keurig salespeople call on the Bed Bath & Beyond and what we call the home channel, Kohl's and other, Macy's and other stores like that, because that's where they always were and they focused on brewers. The Keurig um, sales guys called on supermarkets, that's where they always called on. So that's distribution, but it was a hugely important part of our success. I mean, that, that you hit upon, uh, I just want to elaborate on it a little bit more because um, I, I, I'm faced with that question consistently and constantly from my clients and, and others too uh, about when to Walmart, right? Yeah, you, yeah. And it's uh, in your case, you, in your story, you said, uh, you know, um, it was a strategic reason why you didn't want to do it. But for a lot of companies, it's also an operational reason why you don't want to do it, you know. Yeah, it's it's a it's a mixed blessing. You yeah. your com company could be wiped out if you're operationally if you cannot output. Remember how many doors <laughs> uh, doors yeah. uh, Walmart has, yeah. and if you, if you even produce just one dozen of your thing per door, can you even handle that much volume across all of the doors? If the answer is no, the time is not right. You know for you to uh, do that because even if they give you test doors, that scales up very quickly. Yeah, right? absolutely. Right. You have to make sure that you're ready for it. And also you should be ready for that hard conversation that Benton, Bentonville has with every single brand is, oh, you put that in a, in a, in a, in a, in a box. Can you remove the box and, and give us two pennies? Um, <laughs> right. that? Yeah. I, don't, right. I don't need the box. I just need the bottle. Yeah, right. You know? right. So uh, things of that nature, are you ready operationally to, to handle those kind of special circumstance or, or even smaller bottles? Like if it's a normal, let's call it tablets, right? If you sell 120 tablets, right, they go like, okay, can you make it, make one for 60 tablets at a reduced price so that we can uh, we can uh, sell this? Because we're not Costco, we're Walmart. We want the people to come in more frequently, right? Yeah, so, absolutely. Good point. You know, so th that's a that's a very uh, crucial point. And actually, underlying of all of these distribution channels you, you mentioned, what kept on coming to my mind, and I want you to actually explain one thing. Uh, you know, when I get my cable service, which I don't anymore, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a cord cutter, right? So if I get my service from Verizon or Time Warner, they give me the cable box, right? And the cable box might come in with a very small monthly fee that I have to pay, very small fee. It's not a big number. However, what where they charge me or ding me would be the subscriptions that I have to the different TV channels that I watch. Now, in our prior conversations, not this interview, in prior conversations, you've always talked about razor and blades. 
I, I want you to share that with, with the audience uh, so that they <laughs> understand what that business model looks like. Um, yeah, and you mentioned Peter Klein, who spent a, a few years at Gillette, uh, so he could, <laughs> he could jump in here. The good news is we could always mute him. Um, but seriously, um, ra the razor and blade model um, for, for us, the, uh, the razors are the Keurig machine and the blades are the cups. And the, the razor part of this, so the machine or, you know, which would be the handles to Gillette, we, we sold at break even. We didn't make a nickel on all the machines we sold because we viewed that as the enabler and we sold those literally at, at break even. They were main, uh, manufactured in Asia, uh, middle, uh, minimal CapEx over there. Um, the uh, razor part of this thing uh, are the K-Cups. That's where we made all our money. And we made our profit two ways, by selling our own branded Green Mountain K-Cups and there were numerous SKUs that were invented by us or brands that we had acquired and owned, and those were our highest margin. But the other um, uh, part of this thing, the other blades were other brands of K-Cups, and those they participated in this system via licensing agreement and or licensing agreements. And that was one of the real epiphanies and one of the real strategic um, most important strategic decisions we ever made about this company because, you know, the name on the door was uh, Green Mountain Coffee and we're in there saying donuts in our system. Well, it didn't go particularly. The Green Mountain people were having heart attacks because they're like, how can you put any other brand of coffee in this system uh, besides uh, Green Mountain, and, and the answer was brand uh, the brand and breadth of the offering drove users to the system. So let's say you're a Starbucks, you're a loyal Starbucks user, and if we don't have Starbucks in the system, you're not going to buy one of our machines, and you're not going to enter. So the brand, so we, our strategy was we became brand agnostic. And we had 80 brands in the system, 500 SKUs of K-Cups of different types of beverages. And that became all the different types of blades. And the business took off dramatically whenever we would add one of those new power brands like a Starbucks or a Dunkin' that had, or Pete's that had mass appeal. We would, as soon as we added those K-Cups, we would see a big spike in our brewer sales because people now wanted to enter the system, but if we didn't have their brand of coffee. So that was the model of, uh, of uh, razors and blades as, as we executed. Now, now you, you said that, you know, it, it was like 500 uh, SKUs, right? When, mm -hmm. when you take a company, you take two small companies, you combine them, first of all, it comes with its own set, set of challenges with people, process, manufacturing, operations, marketing, messaging, yeah. you name it, like yeah. you write volumes of books out with that. Well, yeah. How do you take that and align the organization so they're they're going and and and, and um, they are uh, following the same drummer and they're they're going with the same beat, you know, so that you are making beautiful music together and it doesn't turn into chaos? 
um, it, it took a fair a fair amount of discipline because just to uh, amplify what you're talking about during the heyday of our growth years, which was 2006 to 2016, we were growing at 100 percent a quarter. I think we grew at 100 percent a quarter for 29 quarters in a row, if I remember correctly. So we were drinking from a fire hydrant in every possible way. Uh, we started with four people in HR, and in one year we hired a thousand people. So think yeah. about if you have four people in HR, how the hell do you hire a thousand people? So um, we, you know, nobody could have projected uh, severe how we accelerated um, the growth, um, and it took. Uh, a lot of flexible planning. Uh, one of the ways we did it is we had state-of-the-art K-cup manufacturing capability. And so we were able to ramp up our K-cup um, capacity um, very quickly. And uh, the, the brewer sales were, were more um, consistent, but the K-cup sales were uh, um, explosive, I guess, is, is the only way that... Uh, and we ran into, um, I would say, reasonable out-of-stock situations, not uh, terrible. One thing that is a benefit of a lot of SKUs is if you're out of the one one you like, there's plenty of others to choose from. And frankly, people enjoyed the uh, variety that our system provided. So it was uh, manageable. The other thing we did is um, we hired some very sophisticated people in operations from Heinz uh, early in our, our development um, this was one of Bob Stiller's visions that, that was let's build the info systems and build the people systems in advance. Um, so we had very sophisticated information systems that far exceeded the scale of our company in the early years. Um, and he ended up being the right visionary because once the growth exploded, we were able to handle it. Yeah, I mean, one of the challenges when you're growing so fast, if you don't have the right systems, especially culture uh, in place, then yeah. what happens? Sabir comes from Gillette and uh, Dave comes from Pepsi and, and somebody comes from some other organization. Now they're, they have their own mishmash of whatever systems that they're bringing because of their own upbringing. They bring that in and now now you don't really have a culture. It's just a mix mix and match of you you can borrow from it, but but if you if you don't have that foundation as a company, then it gets destroyed from the inside out. You know. Yeah, the build I I make on that is, and I agree with you. This was not big company buying little company, getting swallowed up and doing it the big company way. These were two small companies coming together. Even though it was an acquisition, like I said, how we developed the the uh, the product and the single brewing system was really a collaborative partnership. The, the company uh, was built that way, too, because the, the cultures were almost on even footing. It wasn't like we, you know, Green Mountain was so well established and so large that, and we, you know, inflexible that we were able to integrate them. You know, once we acquired, by the way, Keurig, the first thing we did is we changed the name of the company. It was previously called uh, Green Mountain Coffee Roasters. As soon as we bought Keurig, we, we changed the name to Keurig Green Mountain to at one, and we put Keurig in big caps, uh, to emphasize the strategic priority of Keurig. That was, as Bob Stiller said, chips all in on that one. Keurig, Green Mountain, no coffee roasters, because we were making other beverages besides coffee, tea, 
cider, some cold beverages. So we are no longer just the coffee company. And the other point that was not so subtle is we merged it in one name that basically signaled to everybody in the company, we are one company. Um, and that's how and that's how we went to market. Very cool. Now, let's talk about the kind of the business results of from 2006 journey to 2016. What does growth look like? And what, are, what were those uh, uh, business results? And more importantly, what were the key success factors for making that stuff happen? Um, the, the business results were phenomenal. Uh, we, we acquired Keurig in 2006 for 104 hours. And when we, uh, we acquired them, we, uh, Green Mountain was 250 sales, uh, and they were approximately 20 million. We were still small. Um. So we were 275 million in sales, QM in 2006. 10 years later, we were 6 billion. So uh, I can't do that math now. I used to know the math, but you know, 25 times from 275 to 6 billion. Um, we became the number one uh, brewer in the United States as far as appliances sold. So versus all those Norelcos and Mr. Coffs and all those, um, we passed them by. And we became the number one brand of coffee brewers in the United States. We had an 85 share of the single cup brewer market. So that's set within coffee makers called just single cup brewers. We had an 85 share. Of that. So virtually never, nobody else came in to compete, which was great. Um, we had ubiquitous distribution. We lost track of distribution points, but many of you own brewers and you see them damn near everywhere. So, you know, we one thing I should say, one of the things we had was we had a one-sentence vision, and it was great because everybody could remember this one-sentence vision, and it was a brewer on every countertop and a beverage for every occasion. So a brewer on every countertop means every office, every doctor, every every consumer's home, every apartment building, every college campus, anywhere there's a countertop, we want a brewer there. And a beverage for every occasion, which means we're gonna be more than coffee. We're gonna be hot, we're gonna be cold. We wanna think about beverage occasions through the day and have beverages for those occasions. Um, but as a result of that, we had basically ubiquitous distribution. Um, from a brand standpoint, Young and Rubicam, the big uh, ad agency has a, a a test or a metric system they use every day to evaluate brands. We were in the top quadrant of strongest brands in the United States, uh, up in the upper right-hand quadrant, right up there with Apple uh, back in the early 2000s. Um, and people just love their coffee, um, their Keurig coffee machine. Uh, we were the number 10 uh, food and beverage company in the United States from a market cap standpoint. So if you think about it, um, we were just, uh, in 2016, we sold a company. We are just a little bit larger than Quaker Oats and Campbell Soup. If you wow. think about just comparative size companies. Um, and when we sold it, we, uh, we sold the company for $14 billion. Um, that was, uh, an 80% premium versus what the, um, stock was trading at. It was, stock, it was trading at 52 when we sold it for 92 
which, which was an 80% premium that the uh, premium that year on all acquisitions in the uh, U.S. food and beverage industry was 35%. So, you know, you always want to get more when you're selling a company. But when uh, we were talking about the, the bid that we had received from uh, JEB who acquired us, you know, we could look all the shareholders in the eye and say, you know, an 80% premium when 35% is the average is, is terrific value. Um, other things we we're proud of, we, were the, the, we became the largest employer and largest company in the state of Vermont. Um, which was great for the Vermont economy. Um, and, and recognition, we didn't talk much about this, but um, we were twice recognized within 10 years as the most socially responsible company in the United States, uh, which was really a tribute to Bob Stiller's original vision. Uh, mm -hmm. We gave, um, since day one when the company was started, except for a couple of years, we, have, we had significant issues we contributed 5% of the company's pre-tax operating profit to social responsibility. Now, in the beginning, 5% of nothing is nothing. But at the end, 5% of pre-tax operating profit was a big number, you know, in the 50 to $100 million a year range. We were contributing to major social responsibility efforts, primarily clean water, which tied to our business mission. So, uh, that's really it as, as far as the, uh, the, the business, um, the, the business results. Well, Dave, thank you so much for, you know, all of these amazing insights into the history, into the, uh, into kind of the lessons and insights that, uh, you know, any entrepreneur we've had actually a few comments that, uh, uh, we will share actually, I'll, I'll, I would love to get the, so Marco, so Sirovic, I, um, I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly, is asking, you mentioned several uh, marketing books. Uh, if you could send that to me, it will include it in the, um, in the episode so that we can reference it on Amazon so that people can go and check those uh, books out. Okay. We had mentioned it earlier in the, in the conversation. So to kind of, we have literally like a minute left. What is the number one insight from this entire journey that you took? Uh, the $100,000 number one insight that you would like to leave off every entrepreneur if they're in this uh, kind of a boat right now, they're creating their own products and 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 going through that. What is that sage advice, number one advice that, that you would like to give them? I, I think, you know, I'm a marketing guy. It always goes back to the consumer. Um, we were fortuitous to find a niche in the market that met a lot of consumer needs. It was those consumer coffee pain points that nobody else was addressing. And, uh, you know, we, we created with Keurig some proprietary and patented technology that allowed us to do that. When you do that, you know, you're really leveling the playing field because you have a better consumer idea. I mean, and then some of the business systems and the capital and the investment, the operations and all those other things can build. But if you don't have the consumer or the customer idea, if it's a business to business, you're eventually going to have a problem. So to me, it always comes back to that. And we had great um, consumer insight and execution against that strategy. Um, the other thing I would say, though, is because it was an entrepreneurial company, it took a founder with great vision, um, one smart enough to ignore my advice, um, and with the persistence to keep changing and evolving the strategy. Remember, the tipping point happened 25 years 
out of port. And that took a lot of persistence um, to do that. And then the last part is to be nimble. You need to constantly evolve uh, because somebody's always coming after you. So, you know, continuous improvement, being nimble, being flexible, uh, we're, we're part of the success. But it was a great ride and a, a, fun, a fun initiative to be part of. And, and what, what an amazing journey. Th- thank you, Dave, for being part of uh, This Week with Sabir and sharing your knowledge and, and taking us through the journey and giving us those insights. Uh, really appreciate it. And for the audience members, uh, everyone who asked the question, uh, you know, we, we've had, uh, I don't know if this is your friend of yours or uh, Amy Blumkin. He's a friend of mine. Yeah. yeah, there you go. Uh, so uh, people are enjoying the content that, that we shared with them and, and stuff. And and if you guys are um, want to check out other episodes, uh, for other episodes of uh, This Week with Severe, just go to um, uh, growthbysevere.com um, and just click on episodes and you'll see plenty of uh, experts covering many different variety of topics. We do this on a weekly basis. So th- thank you for uh, for audience to whoever uh, tuned in and whoever is consuming this later on in a recorded version. And Dave, thank you very much. Thank you for being part of this show. It was fun, Sabir. And thanks for not calling me stupid. You know, we didn't interrupt each other either. We were pretty good. I told you it's, this would be a different kind of show. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. All right. I appreciate it.